Hi guys, welcome to the Katie Helper Show. On this episode, I have a special co-host, guest co-host, Jesse Meyerson, an organizer and writer in New York City. And we will be talking to Becky Bond about how to organize against Trump effectively in a way that somehow neoliberal Democrats can't really grasp or get their heads around. We also offer some great bonus content, and that is reading and discussing some tweets by Sally Albright, the Twitter personality and Burner and Bernie Basher par excellence. And we also analyzed some statements by Jen Palmieri, who was the former communications director for the Hillary Clinton campaign. And you may actually have your head explode when you hear what she said. We'll also bring you in our bonus content, the best and worst tweets of the week. So you're definitely going to want to join at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And we talk about the race between Keith Ellison and Tom Perez and why it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for any Democrats to be supporting Tom Perez. It's not even him. It's just about the way it works politically. and It's a terrible PR decision and terrible optics. And if you want to win elections, you shouldn't do it. And you know what, guys? We have an extra bonus that we're giving to everyone. I was going to offer as bonus content an extra interview I did with Sarah Jaffe, the journalist and author who we had on our live audience show a few weeks ago. But here's the deal. I interviewed Sarah Jaffe on her thoughts about the Paris Ellison race and about other things, and it was going to be extra bonus content only for our Patreon supporters. But because the Keith Ellison, Tom Paris race is so relevant and is coming up, I decided something that everyone should be able to listen to, even if you are not a $5 a month Patreon supporter. So make sure you stay tuned till the end, and I throw that out there. Thanks. Bye. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. We are so excited. Today we have uh, Skyping in, calling in, Becky Bond, a repeat offender uh, on the Katie Halper Show, one of the most frequently uh, booked guests. Uh, Becky is a the former head of the former political director of Credo, and she was also an organizer, a senior organizer for the Bernie Sanders for President campaign. And she wrote the book Rules for Revolutionaries: How Big Organizing Can Change Everything with her co-organizer, co-partner in in crime, organizing crime, Zach Exley. We uh, Gabe Pacheco is not here, but we have with us a wonderful, wonderful co-host, Jesse A. Meyerson. Um, who is a writer and organizer from New York City, as in born and raised here, people like me, like Katie Halper, none of this, you know, uh, <laughs> I was here for on September 11th, I've been here for 15 years, doesn't matter. Unless you're from another country, in which case you're expedited. You come from the Dominican Republic, you come from Poland, you become a New Yorker way faster than coming from, like, uh, Minnesota. Yeah, no question. Yeah, Minneapolis, right? Okay, he knows, because he's a New Yorker. And Jesse works for the New York State Nurses Association. So, Becky, Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks for calling in. We got to get you back into the into the city so we can have another face to facer. Um, but I, you guys are an interesting combo because, of course, uh, you guys both have a, a loving relationship uh, with the nurses. Have yeah, you, um, Becky, you, you and Zach in your book, Rules for Revolutionaries, sing the praises of nurses and actually say that no revolutionary movement uh, can, can merit that description without having nurses involved. If, if I can't nurse, well, I don't want to be part of the revolution, is, is a way to put it. Well, well, let's think about it. I mean, like, do you really, if the nurses aren't on your side, like, I think, you know, most people have had some kind of personal experience with a nurse. 
And, you know, nurses deal with all of the ills of society, and they're always there. And they don't just care about the one of the things that's wrong with you. They care about everything in your lives. They really treat the whole person. And if the nurses aren't with you, you've got to think, maybe I've got something wrong. And then you got to look at to where the nurses are, and you have to think, I probably should be with them. I think if you use that simple rule in politics that you'll probably never go wrong. I like it. So the, the nurses are like the northern star? Yeah, the weather vane. Like, the weather like vane? The, <laughs> no, they don't they, turn like, like. like the indicator species, yes. Right. You know, if there's no nurses, then we're going to help that. And what do you do with the nurses, Jesse? Oh, I, I do communications for the New York State Nurses Association. Um, but a lot, I mean, the <clears throat> the worst stuff that means is dealing with the press and doing, like, you know, press releases and stuff. But the best thing that entails is working with nurses, interviewing them, getting their stories, Ooh. featuring them. They're just, um, yeah, I mean, it's like Becky said, they're, they... What they do for a living is uh, care and heal, which are the right. two best things. They're almost all women, which is the best of the um, many genders. And uh, they're a lot of them, at least in New York, are immigrants, which gives them a, a, an appreciation. Well, first of all, they're um, New Yorkers then. They're Duh, New Yorkers. But a lot said. of them have come out of countries that have had um, recent revolutionary movements. And oh, so they're, they're, they have a, a sort of tenacity about them in, on, as far as politics goes. And, uh, and yeah, a lot of them work in the public sector and treat people regardless of their income, their um, documentation status, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it's like Becky says, they're they're a good, um, solid sort of ethical rock that you can turn to in, in times when you're confused about what to think. Nice, I like it. And they don't have god complexes like some doctors do. That's right. Um, yeah, awesome. So Becky, this book that you wrote, Rules for Revolutionaries: How Big Organizing Can Change Everything, is really good. People are talking about it a lot. People are excited about it. They're really liking it. You got great blurbs from Naomi Klein, Nina Turner, Robert Reich. Uh, Lucy Flores, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, and it's kind of a, it's not like a tell-all expose about working on the campaign, but it really is a kind of guide for what people can do who were moved by Bernie Sanders' revolution, who were moved by the campaign, by the movement. Um, and you have uh, 21 rules? 22. No. Yeah, 22 <laughs> rules, right? Yeah, we started with we started with a lot more, but the editors took a few out. Yeah. So we can have that for a, a special extra credit session. Right. <laughs> so what do you think are the kind of the, the most important rules um, if you had to do triage? Now, of course, this is exactly what you say not to do. None of this narrow <laughs> micro-targeting, none of that. But if you, I don't know, what do you think is something that really needs to be applied to, to where we are right now, especially because you wrote the book before Trump was elected? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. Um, uh, Zach and I, we wrote the book in August, and um, and we took five weeks before the general, sort of the, you know, the general election, um, uh, GOTV and organizing. A lot of it really starts after Labor Day. And so we took the, the first week of September and all of August to write down as many lessons as we could from our time on the on the campaign because we knew we needed to get back to work. And and this was this sort of crash course in what can other people learn from our experiences on the Bernie Sanders campaign that they can then apply to whatever struggle they're working on, whether they are um, working, um, whether they're fighting for the movement for black lives or whether they're part of the anti-fracking movement or whether they're part of the immigration movement. What can we share about what we learned that might reinforce things they're already doing and say, yeah, this is this is the way to keep doing it or gosh, I've always wanted to try something like that. Look, someone else has done it and it was successful. Now it's my time to try, try that as well. And, I, you know, I think that the, 
you know, there's a, there are a, a set of rules that are in progress, and, and I think they continue to change, and, and we're, we're, we're learning from people that are reading the book all the time. But I think one of the most important lessons is the, the first rule, which is that you don't get a revolution if you don't ask for one. And, you know, what that really challenges people to do is, you know, if you don't go out there and ask for something big, you're never going to get something big. And if you go out and ask for something small, you often get something smaller. Mm. But if you ask for something big, you know, you may not get there, but you probably do better than, than you would have asking for something small. And then also sometimes you actually, you actually win. And I think a lot of us have been tired of fighting for things that were not just compromises, but they were compromises on the compromise right. that we made when we started. And so um, I think the idea is, is like, let's, we have some pretty radical problems and um, radical problems can, can, can only be solved with pretty radical solutions. And so we need to start going out there and asking for the change that we really need to see, because if we don't start by asking, you know, for the big thing that we really need, then we're never going to get it. Mm-hmm. And also, it, it um, in the book, it, it, you indicate that the the ask itself has an effect on people. That if they're if something kind of uh, amazing is put before them, they're much likelier to be drawn into it than if something sort of milk toast is. Yeah, I mean, people are really smart, and they know things are messed up. Um, and you know, you know, I think we saw a lot of that in the selection with a lot of the people that you know didn't participate in this election um because they really didn't they really didn't didn't feel like that the choices were going to were going to solve the problems that were the most pressing in their in their lives and so you know people i think the politicians and the political advocates have for you know for the last 20 years we've been asking people to do increasingly smaller things to win increasingly smaller things and what happens is is we ask people to do something small you know, um, to win something small, like let's say a, a, a plastic uh, bag ban, which is an important thing, don't get me wrong, or, you know, we're always trying to get a better bottle bill in places like New York mm-hmm. and Massachusetts. And, you know, the, the problem is, is that people are just like, you know, that's actually, you know, we're, the, the planet, we're just hurtling towards, you know, the apocalypse. And we actually need to deal with the big issues of climate change and stop fossil fuel extraction. And so the, 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 the question is, is what happens, though, when, when people ask for small things that are not that relevant to the radical, you know, problems that are coming crashing down on us, then people are like, well, how is that going to solve the problem? And then they don't participate. But then the, the professional political people and the politicians, they take that as a sign of the apathy of the people, right? So when we ask for the wrong things and people don't participate, we're like, well, the people are apathetic. The people suck. They don't want to be involved. They're not smart enough to know. But in reality, it's our fault, right? We're asking for the wrong things. But we learned that if we actually ask for something big instead of asking for something small, that more people are likely to participate. So um, it's one of the things we learned in the primary, and I I think a lot of people understand this, um, but maybe they're not running most of the things in Washington, D.C., is that, you know, uh, people are willing to do – fewer people are willing to do something small to win something small than are willing to do something big to win something big. And I think – you know, that's why when Bernie Sanders told people he we needed to create a political revolution and people thought he was crazy. But then what happened was people were like, yeah, actually, it is going to take a political revolution. It's going to take millions of people to get involved in the system if we're really going to change things. And they're like, but if we did that, we could actually change things. And so it was that call to action, you know, which became the zeitgeist of, you know, the second half of 2015 and the first half of 2016 and really changed politics. You have some interesting things that you described uh, in in the book, uh, in the Why Big Organizing intro. You say, um, by the end of the 20th century, 
However, big organizing had been almost completely supplanted by applauding one-by-one organizing orthodoxy that we call small organizing. The rise of small organizing is a complex story involving the professionalization of politics, attempts by the liberal establishment to channel radical impulses of working-class people and people of color into incrementalist politics, and the ascendancy of a bipartisan technocratic elite in both the Democratic and Republican parties that has been accelerating the concentration of power in the hands of an increasingly small number of mega corporations and institutions. And then, uh, a, a few pages later, you talk about what you were just describing uh, to me and Jesse. You say that um, the small organizing drives a negative feedback loop where fewer and fewer people participate because the changes promised are too small to be worth anyone's time, leading campaigners to turn to leading campaigners in turn to lower their expectations of participation. Even though the campaigners and policymakers are the drivers of this process, they experience it as proof of the apathy of the people. The result is that too many elected officials are basing important decisions not on what we would be best for all Americans, but on what they imagine would appeal to a small number of swing voters, usually at the center right of the political debate. So given that, um, I wanted to know if you think that the Bernie campaign and the movement um, kind of convinced anyone who wasn't already with with us that big organizing is the way to go. Well, well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think you know since the you know since the election of Trump, uh, you know, I, I, it's been really. You know, it's been really wonderful to be with other people who really get this, that we're all in it together, and it's going to take all of us to defeat Trump. And, uh, you know, I'm involved in all sorts of projects, some of which I'm, you know, I'm, in, I'm involved in for my work and some of which I'm involved in as a volunteer, where we have people, you know, that were diehard Clinton supporters um, that, are, that are saying, you know, ah, I'm so glad someone finally asked me to actually step up and take responsibility, you know, for, for organizing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's what big organizing does. And I, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's specific to the Bernie Sanders campaign, but big organizing does require that we have a big ask and a big vision and big organizing. It's, it's big in, it's big in three ways. It's big because we have a big goal and a big vision that we're going for. It's big because we want to get as many people involved as possible because it takes a lot of people to do big organizing. And it's also big because we actually ask people if they, if they can to do, big, they, to do big things. We let them, you know, devote more time and, and rise above the envelopes, you know, stuffing flag, you know, like a sign waiting stage and, and manage other volunteers and take charge of, 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 you know, whole software platforms, you know, to get things, to get things done. So, so I, I think that this, you know, right now we do have a huge challenge in front of us and, there's lots of people stepping up, whether they worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign or not. Um, what, what is amazing is that so many of the people that volunteered for or worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign are, are starting or involved in a lot of these big organizing efforts because they know how to do it, because they've been involved. They've been given that radical trust to run whole parts of the campaign, and they're welcoming people in you know, who um, maybe supported Clinton or maybe weren't involved in the election. And it, let me just tell you, it's so great. I mean, people are so great and talented, and you know, I think if um, – if the volunteers had actually been given charge of organizing in places where the Clinton campaign, you know, wasn't staffed or wasn't involved, you know, that we could have had a, you know, maybe a different outcome in the election. Hillary would have won. Um, 
Uh, one thing about big organizing that's exciting to me and that I think a lot of people are thinking about um, in the wake of the election uh, that you sort of alluded to there at the end, uh, which is also the topic of um, another wonderful book that people should read called Hegemony How-To mm -hmm. by a great organizer named uh, Jonathan Matthew Smucker from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is that um, the movement that will be required to guarantee dignity and freedom for everyone cannot be rooted in um, educated millennials in New York, San Francisco, Boston, D.C., Philadelphia, and Chicago, or whatever, that it's going to require millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people maybe across the country and in um, segments of the country in the interior and in the south and in the plains that um, uh, traditionally uh, leftists in coastal met metropolises have sort of written off as uh, you know potential sources of revolutionary action. So I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about that, the, the um, necessity to to uh, w what steps we, we uh, like New Yorkers like Katie and I who grew up in the left, what steps we would need to take in order to um, be able to uh, band together with and inspire uh, people throughout the whole country? Well, I think, you know, uh, well, first of all, it's so great that, um, Katie, that you have this show on WBAI in New York that's also available on the Internet and that you take on these topics. And... So first of all, it's so great to have conversations that welcome everybody um, into you know what we're what we're talking about and and opening up that discussion and not having not making assumptions about you know who um, about about who this who this this kind of idea is and this discussion is for right. because you know when I was on the campaign trail for the Bernie Sanders campaign it was amazing no matter where I went no matter what level of education someone had you know the the that they you know that the, they could people could use oligarchy. You know, mm, correctly right. in a really complicated sentence. And, no, um, actually, and Becky, it was great. it's oligarchy. 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 <laughs> there you go, oligarchy. Yeah. Yes, it's spelled oligarchy. with an A in Brooklyn. And, uh, <laughs> and I know, and you know, I mean, a lot of them couldn't even. I mean, there was extra syllables, and, and the pronunciation was not quite right, but they used it correctly. <laughs> right. And and so and so, I, you know, I think part of it is is that the analysis needs to be sophisticated, right? Because people are really smart. Everywhere I went, people were really smart. And they get it, right? They get that they're being screwed in a thousand ways, right, by big corporations in the 1%. And, and, and so you can't tell them stuff like, hey, the economy's growing. Things right. are great for the country, right, when they know real <laughs> wages have been going down for 40 years. And, and, so, and, so, and then they get the difference between health insurance regulation and health care reform, right? They get that, right? We got health insurance changes. We didn't get health care reform. So, so, so people are really smart. And, and, and I think that, the, that we as organizers, one of the things we have to do is we just have to recognize that we're all peers in this movement together. And, and that doesn't mean that people don't have different responsibilities and that we don't need to have good management practices and all those things. But it, but it really means that, you know, that there are lots of, that there's a lot of work that has to be done and it has to be done in different places. And we're all in this movement together and it's going to take so many leaders. And so we have to identify people everywhere um, to work together. And I think how we, how we present ourselves as peers to people in different places, and, and we're all working together to produce certain numbers, right? In an election, it's votes. In an advocacy campaign, it may be turning people out or phone calls, or it may be how many people we can get to run for office. But, um, but we all have goals. And so, you know, the extent to which we as organizers can you know, um, get behind central plans that gives everybody, uh, lots of people, a chance to take parts of the work and do them, and then we trust other people to do the work, holding them accountable to the numbers. Then you look at who springs up as leaders, and you know what I mean? It's, it's, 
it's not usually, you know what I mean, the, the, the fancy pants um, elites. You know, we, we have this rule mm. on the campaign, which I think is great to take in other kinds of organizing, which is that we really didn't talk that much about the issues. We just talked about the work. And we, we brought people up into leadership by asking people who wants to get to work, not who wants to lead. And when you ask who wants to lead, you get people that see themselves as leaders or feel like they're educated as a leader. They feel like mm. I'm the best person to talk. And they right. think leadership is talking. And um, but if you actually create an organization where what you what you reward and what you value is how much work we all get done, then you'll just easily find yourself shoulder to shoulder with the most diverse group possible. Um, of course, this all you know presumes that you have a righteous cause right. that is worth working for, and that and that is that includes you know, racial justice and economic justice. You know, both of which have to be involved to get the best people involved. But um, but I but I think it's really not as hard. You know what I mean? As we always, as a lot of people say, well, it's really hard to get these people involved. And it's like, well, why don't you, you know, why don't why don't we put out a plan with a bunch of work and invite people to do it? And right. I can tell you that the people that will rise up um, into leadership will, will be an incredibly wonderful and diverse, you know, group of people with um, lots of women, lots of working class people. It doesn't matter how many jobs people are working; they find time right. for important work um, that's going to solve our problems. So, two things on that related to that. One is. Um like you said, you know, only people who have high, who see themselves as, as you know, very competent or people who are more educated and more confident will, will step up to lead. Also, the other downside is that the people who don't think of themselves that way aren't, less, aren't necessarily as educated or as Ivy League educated will be self-effacing, right? And they won't do it. So then you miss out on all these potentially great organizers. And, of course, you don't want a, a monolith of, of, like, white dudes from Ivy League plus Stanford, and Wesleyan, um, and I said, or just whatever, yeah. Um, but uh, well, are you are you a lawyer? Are you a lawyer, Katie? No, but I I always thought I would be actually. I didn't do it though. How I, about you, Jesse? Nope, just Jewish. <laughs> no, that's oh, not, that's okay. doctor, not lawyer. But yeah, both of them work. Both of them work. We had we had this problem which we called the but I'm a lawyer problem. Mm. And so we would go and have these organizing meetings and tell people how they could get to work to to help Bernie Sanders get elected. And it was always about running voter contact operations. And so, and there was always mm. this point in the meeting where someone raised their hand. We'd say, here's all the most important stuff to do. And someone raised their hand and say, but I'm a lawyer. Right. And it would be like, I was like, you should make phone calls to voters in Iowa. And they're like, but I'm a lawyer. And then it's like, next question. So <laughs> we got to, we got to get rid of that. So were they saying like, I'm a lawyer, you should use me. Yeah. To put me to better fight. use than just phone yeah. calls. You should have given them really and boring just... things like notarizing stuff. <laughs> Washing yeah, the bathroom. Yeah. yeah. We could. Robo signing. We can have them, yeah. you know, robo sign a, a, a bunch of fake, fake mortgages. Yeah, um, that'd be awesome. But also, um, related to that question, what do you do about? Um, sorry, uh, I just was going to read something. Oh, um, there's this. You just said that people do the work. It doesn't matter how many jobs they have, and I think that's true. But I also think that there's this narrative for understandable reasons that. When you don't pay for work, you only get a certain demographic, which tends to be the demographic which is more uh, financially stable or secure, right? But uh, can you talk about how true that is and how true that is in the context of organizing? Yeah, I think that this is. I think that this is uh, this is a big problem in the progressive movement, um, where there there has been and, and for and for good reasons like full time internships. Right, the kind of person that can forego any income and work full time right. in order to get an entry level job in a progressive institution, that's exclusionary, right? Um, but um, requiring someone to quit their job 
and work for you full time in order to have leadership in a movement, that's exclusionary too, right? So like, you know, we had an, an amazing right. Latina leader who was working class, who was a, she had like 30 years in a public school system. She wasn't going to quit her job, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, to work six months on a campaign. Like that would have been crazy, right? But she worked several hours every day and she worked every weekend. And so why would I not, why would we not allow her to have a leadership position and, and the way we dealt with this, and there were lots of people like that. There were construction workers. There were HR professionals. There were, you know, software developers. These are people that are, you know, from people from all works of life, right? Um, we had a lot of um, people that drove for Uber and Lyft that would come and volunteer, and they would organize their downtime um, in order to come and, and work for the campaign. And, and here, here's the way we sort of got around the problem of, um, of, of not requiring someone to work full-time and quit their job to, to get a paid – because we paid our interns on the Bernie Sanders campaign, and, and I believe in paying your interns, right? But, but we came up with right. the concept that three to, four, three to four really qualified, experienced volunteers were committed – could do the same work as one full-time person. Mm. And this isn't true for every job. You wouldn't want your press spokesperson probably to be a team of three or four right. volunteers. Tag but teaming in and for out most, mid-press conference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And for, for most, most, you know, sort of like jobs on, on our part of the campaign, that we could get a team of three or four people, and they would job share. And they were experienced. And you know what? They had like three or four experienced people you know, we've got, we had public school teachers. We had, um, we had people that we literally had some great leaders that came out of the construction trades, um, you know, and, and when they're on a team together, like the, the life experience, their people skills, their understanding of how to make a process work, it was so rich and it was so much better than hiring, you know, paying a 22 year old, um, you know, college graduate full time to come, you know what I mean, uh, right. who had no experience to come and work for us. It, it was right. far better. And so we built these teams of people, and people said, thank you for letting me, you know what I mean, right. have a way to really contribute. And I was just like, no, thank you for actually, you know, running a big part of, of the campaign. It, it was uh, it was amazing. And you also say, um, I wanted to read a couple things that are related all uh, in the book. You say, we have to have a meaningful message and big goals. Instead of asking for the change that politicians think is possible, we have to ask for the change that is actually needed to solve problems. This will necessarily be big. And then you write, what do big organizing goals look like? Uh, and these are the uh, make public college free, end the drug war and stop the mass incarceration of black and brown people, let everyone enroll in Medicare, and make health care truly universal. Pursue an industrial policy that seeks to put everyone to work in the best jobs possible. None of these are crazy things to ask for, and it's not crazy to ask for them all at once. In fact, all of those things are the status quo in almost every high- and middle-income country in the world. Bernie Sanders called for them, and he almost won the presidential primary. Our problems are big, so our solutions must be big. To achieve them, we need a new kind of organizing, and that is big organizing. And you make a kind of uh, an interesting statement. You say big organizing rarely works around a single issue our struggles are all interconnected um and so there's that and then just to skip ahead a little bit so we have those big goals right then you also say that um you want to see quote leaders from movements um take power a protest movement is not successful if it knocks out an establishment only to replace it with a newer fresher one that holds the same values and agenda as the old one 
Some people in our in our movements believe strongly that we should not take power, that we should simply build stronger and stronger protest movements that will eventually wipe away the very existence of power. We respect that view, but don't share it. We want to see the people take power, and we believe the right that right now the people are closer than ever to making that happen. So to, to step back, so you, you say that there are these radical solutions are, are required for radically, you know, severe problems. Then you say that uh, there, the, these radical solutions, which you support, which Sanders put forward about Medicare, um, about uh, public college, uh, are, are totally plausible and feasible. And then you talk about people who are, let's say, uh, who are going to perhaps uh, replace something establishment with another establishment thing. So to me, what this really resonates to me because in the context of the Trump victory, my fear is that there are people who happen to be the same people who are extremely anti-Trump, um, and I'm afraid will, once we do defeat Trump, if we do, we'll reinstate this neoliberal uh, center and centrism that helped create Trump in the first place, and that they are talking still about things like public uh, free public college and universal health care. They are calling these ideas crazy and purity politics and pie in the sky. I don't, I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I, I enjoy fighting yeah. with them on Twitter, but that's probably not the most productive <laughs> thing. Unless I can link it to fundraising. If I could pick an organization, right, and, like, somehow every blank retweets I got, some money would go to it. <laughs> that that would be great. Or I'll be a hit Yeah, person. we should figure that out. Yeah, I'll be a hit woman. Yeah. Someone sends me an or yeah, like I said, I a real pavement-pounding organizer who doesn't have time to battle on Twitter sends me the target, the issue, the, the tweet I have to engage in and then you know that's how i pay it forward that's my <laughs> that's how i fight the resistance run the resistance but i mean i and and twitter isn't real life but it is a window as i, I like to say it's a window into where the souls of people would be who run the media or yeah. are high up in the media and this idea still i mean you have people saying that there's a range among centrist democrats and the range is um at, at best it's kind of like um Bernie bashing centrist Democrats, let's say. So you have Bernie um, Bernie criticizing and then Bernie bashing. The Bernie cr criticizers say, look, I, of course, love the idea of, of universal health care, but it's not going to happen. And then you have the more egregious versions, the Sally Albrights, if you will. I will. Um, yes, thank you. And Sally, welcome. we wanted to have you on the show. Her <laughs> thing is like Bernie's a sexist, misogynist, um, straight white dude, and he um, is has has – Pol uh, purity politics and is is crazy and demanding radical things that Americans will never go for, like uh, universal health care, which gives you universal health. So how do you respond to these people? I mean, how do you as an organizer, what's our jobs? What's everyone's jobs? Like, what's the, the podcast, podcast host's job, radio show host's job? What's the uh, organizer's job? Well, are there certain yeah, people we really can't convert? One. Like, are there certain people we can't convert um, and who we just can't work with and we have to crush and, you know, really engage with and, and humiliate. I know this sounds so not woke, but I really believe, like, look, with Judith Miller, right, she had her credibility yeah. taken away from her, and that was just. Yeah. She should have, she could have, maybe we could have given her a chance to atone, explain what happened, and then never do it again, and she could have revealed some problems within the media, blah, 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 but barring that, she should have had her credibility taken away. I want the same thing to happen, and it's not just because I enjoy doing it, but 
there really is a, a public use of it and public service. We can't have these ideas that things that are doable are radical pie in the sky because that will bring us back to the status quo that led us have Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, my, my home state of Tennessee, the governor's just, you know, announced that they're, the Republicans are making community college free for everyone. And, you know, I mean, it's it, these are not these are not crazy. These are not crazy programs. And, and I think that this, you know, that this 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 um, these low expectations that the that the neoliberals keep pushing you know, on the Democratic Party is is really what got us to where we are um, to where we are today. I think it's a big test right now to see whether the the people that you know um, you know were involved in losing the presidential campaign to Trump are going to be are going to stay in control you know of the National Party and going to stay in control of the of the of the you know how most of the national the big donors you know flow their flow their money. I mean, I'll give you an even worse you know scenario, you know, which is that. You know, I, I think there's something even more fundamental even um, in this moment, which is that the, a lot of the national Democrats, they're really focused on Trump and mm -hmm. all the extremes that Trump is going to. Mm -hmm. But in reality, this is the entire, you know, Republican, you know, party, all the Republican national, you know, elected officials are just standing shoulder to shoulder with Trump to push this radical agenda. And so not only do – first we have to not only defeat Trump, but we have to defeat the Republicans because if we just pull out Trump and end up with Pence and Ryan, we're not – it doesn't change the agenda, you know, hardly, hardly at all. And so we could have a massive movement moment only to remove Trump, not to get a neoliberal Democrat in charge, but just to, to get the Republicans, right, back in charge mm -hmm. because we focus so much on Trump being an anomaly – you know what I mean? And this being this crazy, unprecedented, you know, fascist threat. But in reality, we have um, a, a hard right Republican Party that's united behind a standard bearer um, who has, um, you know, who's a fraud and who's lied, you know what I mean, to, 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 to get people who voted, you know, to mislead people into voting for him for, you know, for supposedly populist, um, populist right. reasons. But, you know, I, I think in some ways it comes down to the candidates that run, and we need a narrative that's counter to what we're hearing from from um, you know, from the from the from the David Brocks and the mm. um, you know and, and the rest of the neoliberal uh, uh, sort of like Clinton corner, and right. and when you have someone like Tom Perriello running for for governor for the Democratic nomination for governor of Virginia, he's talking about how the Democrats say you know he's literally out there saying look the Democrats think if we could just message our programs better. Right. You know, people just don't understand that the macroeconomic news is really good, and we just need to explain to them better how our policies are good for them. And the answer is no, that the people – and Tom Perriello says this on the trail – that the people are really smart, and they get it, that the economy is really fragile, and that it's harder for them than ever to get into the middle class. And if they get in the middle class, there's no guarantee that they could stay there. And it's this fragility that's really put a lot of voters up for grabs, and we need to address that along with all of the – dog whistle, you know, racial politics that got us to this moment where we where we are. So, you know, to, I think that it's going to take the movement. And the movement is standing up. I think it's going to take. Um, I think it's going to take. Uh, I think it's also going to take people running for office and current politicians within the structure to actually fight back. And that's why it's fantastic that Keith Ellison decided to fight to be the leader of the party. I think that's great that Tom Perriello decided to, you know, primary the establishment candidate running for governor in Virginia. But, if, you know, we, we could end up with a lot of establishment, you know, candidates who are not inspiring running for Congress in 2018. 
and uh, and if that happens, it's going to be really hard to take back the to take back the house. So um, candidate recruitment um, and calling on current politicians to actually be courageous and split with the party is something that we need to do. So your co-author on this book and and your partner in the, at the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign, Zach Exley, um, has uh, subsequent to the publication of the book started a project called uh, Brand New Congress, which is um, supposed to uh, do the very thing that you were just talking about: recruit um, the sorts of candidates who you uh, said would were made good volunteers on the Bernie Sanders campaign. You know, teachers of the year and uh, people who are are sort of leaders in their community, but um, perhaps political novices. Um, and I. Um, when I saw that he was doing that, it um, resonated very strongly with your book and with the emphasis on making big demands and having big projects, you know, brand new Congress, every single one. You know, when you talk about working the numbers, uh, like 100% is a really kind of inspiring number, all of the Congress out and a whole new one in. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and and you, you, yeah. you too have started a project based on that 100% number in, in the wake of this book, which is called Knock Every Door. Uh, I, I wonder if you would uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, don't, I mean, Jesse, I bet you know so many, you know, members of your union who would be great in office. Oh, yeah. Right. If they would run for office. That would be just amazing. These are people that are really practical, that would ignore the conventional wisdom to actually get out and solve the problems that the people face. Right. And that when asked a question, you know, would try and answer it and not equivocate, right, even if the person doesn't agree with you. Um, and, uh, and we have so many times where politicians just don't want to, you know, have anyone disagree with them. They, they twist up their statements in sort of weasel words to the extent that people don't believe them, and, and, and who can blame the people, right? That, that's not a media conspiracy. When people really won't come down and say what their position is on an issue because they're afraid of, of offending someone, then – then, then you know that that creates a dynamic that 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 is part of what got us to to where we are today. Like, I, like I think that, you know, we you know, Donald Trump proved that you know that maybe anyone can run for office right. and win and defy the conventional wisdom, right? And we had this, you know, a lot of the ways the presidential race played out was that, you know, a bunch of political professionals had this idea about electability. Right, and a lot of people said, you know, I agree with Bernie Sanders, but I don't think he's electable, so mm -hmm. I'm not going to support him, even though I agree with him on the issues. And 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 in the end, you know, the person that turned out not to be electable, you know, was mm -hmm. not Bernie Sanders. You know, it was Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. turned out to be the one that wasn't electable, and that's the exact opposite of what the professional conventional wisdom was. Now we don't know whether Bernie Sanders was electable or not, but 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 we don't know for sure that he wasn't. Right. right, because you know we didn't we didn't win the primary, and so he didn't go up in the in the general uh, election. So we have a better record. So I think you know, like Hillary does. Yeah, so you know, thinking small has certainly proven not to win, mm -hmm. right? And so this idea of thinking big about yeah, we should run someone for every office, um, and we should actually run some unlikely people that the political pros wouldn't pick and help them to to run. I think is a I think is is not such a is not such a crazy idea, and, and it's these ideas, you know, we have to put out a bunch of these ideas and see what inspires people to actually get involved, and, you know, we, the, the Tea Party certainly ran some, you know, unlikely people. They knocked off Eric Cantor in a race that nobody thought that, uh, you know, the House Majority Leader could, uh, or sort of the House Whip, was that what he was at the time? Anyway, mm -hmm. someone in House Republican leadership could lose, and, and, they, and they knocked him off, you know what I mean, with someone who'd never been, you know, in elected office before. So I think we have to throw out these preconceived notions. All the political professionals, you know, pretty much proved, um, you know what I mean, that they didn't know um, what was going on in this last cycle. And, um, and so we shouldn't, we shouldn't let them play the same playbook 
um, in the next election and and expect to win. And you know, this knock every door campaign that I launched with as a volunteer with a bunch of other volunteers. The idea behind that is is we make all sorts of assumptions about what voters are with us and what voters aren't. We only talk to a small slice of the electorate in most political campaigns. There's all these people that never vote, and campaigns just don't talk to them. They're like, they never vote. It'll be too hard to get them to vote. We're not going to talk to them at all, right? And it's just like that's crazy. It's a huge part of the electorate, and if we had just um, if we just mobilized a portion of them to get involved and vote, you know, we could have won. It's the same thing with people that vote with us all the time. If they vote with us all the time, then we're like, ah, you know what I mean? I don't. They have nowhere to go. I'm not going to talk to them, right? And then when they vote in lesser numbers because they were ignored, you know what I mean? That hurts too because those are the people that that would have been that would have been with us. And so we really need to, you know, get out of our filter bubbles. And um, and you know, Katie, you ask what can a what can a podcast, what can a radio host do is you know, I, th- I think, you know, um, people do need social media and this kind of media to learn about what's happening around them and to learn about what they can do. And what we want to do right now is urge people to actually do things together in person. And, mm-hmm. and Jesse, you're part of a union and you know how, how valuable it is for people to get together in person and be together and how that emboldens people and how much more they can do together, how that brings joy into your life. The struggle is long. You know, we need to form these relationships and working with people that we don't know and talking to people is really enriching. And so getting people out there and knock every door allows volunteers anywhere to start a door-to-door campus on their own where they live, bring together other like-minded people who they may not know, and just start going out knocking on doors and having deep and important conversations with voters that you may not agree with or that may have not been in, in, involved in politics. And you know, time after time, when I talk to these people that are going out and doing this knock every door canvases, they just tell me like, you know what, it's amazing how much people will tell you when you knock on their door and tell you you're there to listen. And I have had the most amazing conversations and I've learned so many things. And I actually think it's going to be possible to bring together the people we need to defeat Trump. If we just start getting out there, talking to people, learning what's really going on in people's lives and fighting for an agenda that's going to bring all of us, you know, to a better place. And, uh, And I think that's where that starts. Yeah. Um, so you're saying knock on doors. So are you saying I should find out where David Brock lives and very unthreateningly just knock on his door, bring some fruitcake and, and, and talk to him about, uh, you know, his uh, being a, a, a abuse. What, what would we say? Being uh, not so helpful to the progressive cause. <laughs> David, my, my name's Katie. I'm here to listen <laughs> yeah. to you. I'm explain to, listen, to me yeah. why you're why, so bad at why you're being a political strategist. <laughs> and with open ears and open arms. In fact, Nina Turner, we just had her on, who blurbed your book. And we're going to, oh, yeah. Isn't she the, she's the best, I know. She's so great. And she said, um, we have to seek to be under. We have to seek to understand before we seek to be understood. We have to be soft on people, hard on the issues, which I think is a great thing. To yeah. thing. But she also said that de- the Democrats and the DNC need to confess their sins and there needs to be a healing and that we have to look back at what yeah. happened. Some people at the, the DNC have to apologize and then we can move forward. Yep. Um, and I do think that's a it's, it's interesting because it's kind of like, you know, there are different things that, that are appropriate for different people. So I think that, you know, in some ways, like I think that there's more potential to convert and reach out to someone who may not be woke and maybe uh, whatever uh, race. But let's say working class, not as educated, don't they don't know the um, vernacular. Right. And uh, or the, the, the disc, what's it, the nomenclature? Um, those people, I feel like, are more uh, potentially winnable than people who are super well-educated and or super um, elite 
and self-interested, right? Like a rich person who's 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 terrible about tax stuff, they probably won't change because they're just self-interested in the short term, right? Someone who's getting screwed by by taxes, I think, is there's more room to reach out to them. I think I think it's it's really about. I mean, within the left, it's really the grassroots versus the establishment, right. and within right. the electorate in general. It's really the it's really the people who are getting screwed versus the people who are screwing us, and that's not a partisan fight, right? Mm. And there are plenty of people, right? It's most Americans who are getting a raw deal today and who are finding their standard of living um, going down, not up, right? Um, and so it, it's it's it, it it's first of all we have to admit that a lot of the people in the Democratic Party don't really want to change things because they're on top and they're benefiting from the system as it is. Um, and, uh, and so I think that expands, you know what I mean? The idea when we take off that partisan lens and we start talking about, you know, the, um, we start talking about the 1% and the big corporations who are using race in dog whistle politics to divide working class people, Mm -hmm. um, working class whites, working class people of color, um, that we sort of begin to see the shape of, you know, what a movement needs to look like in order to, um, to, to take power. And so I think within that, I think you're right that we, we, we shouldn't have assumptions about who is on our side just because they can speak a certain kind of lingo or they say, oh, I'm, I'm socially liberal, you know what I mean, right. but I'm fiscally conservative. Right. right? Well, what is that? What is that? What, what is that really? Is that really possible right. if you don't believe that everyone should go to the doctor? <laughs> right. Does that make you socially? Can you be socially liberal? You know what I mean? If you're okay with people, you know, not being able to, you know, feed their family when they're when they're working two jobs, right, or afford a place, safe place to live, I, I, I think we've got to throw out that conception. And you know, I don't, I, I think that we can have a bigger tent in the party if we if we actually stop uh, appeasing some of the people, um, some of the blue dogs, and and some of the some of the um, you know some of the center right people who are masquerading as conservative Democrats. Right. Yeah, I like that. I think that's great. And. Um uh, yeah, there's a what. Uh, you have any responses to people who 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 mock the idea of free college and think say it's totally not doable? You know, it's just it's. I mean, you know, I don't I don't mean to like quote a meme, but it's just like how come we have all the money in the world that we need to go to, to every time we need to go to war? Mm. You know what I mean? Or 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 sign a new? You know what I mean? Or totally, or, yeah. or, or 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 give billions to defense contractors? You know, we don't have enough money to pay for. For free college, how come we have the money to pay for mass incarceration? But we don't have money to pay for for free college. That's just—it's just ridiculous, right? right? Um, that people have been have been led to um, have been led to to believe that it's it's just a question of priorities. Right, and then the question to me is always like um, whether the person actually believes that and are just like not good at, at being critical thinkers, or whether they know that it's not true but fundamentally oppose it ideologically and pretend they do it because it's not pragmatic, which it, it is. Right. So that's always the, the struggle. I mean, if the Republicans can make if the Republicans in Tennessee can make community college free for everyone. Right. I mean, what's going to happen is the Republicans are actually going to like pass a couple like maybe Repu- like what if Donald Trump passed universal health care, man, he'd be in for and then did all this horrible stuff. He'd right. be in for eight years. Right. Yeah. Right. And the Democrats are like, we can't do like, we couldn't possibly do that. You know what right. I mean? Totally. Because I mean, that's that's, that's just, catering to racist somehow. I don't understand why. But anything that's good basically is uh, catering to racist and sexist. I don't get it because it's actually helping people who are at the receiving end of both of those things. But anyway, and any final words? Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, I cut you off. I was going to ask no, you about no, the no, DNC. Go ahead. Well, any any th- about the DNC chair race? 
Well, I mean, um, oh, can, gosh, I, can I ask you, you a specific I mean, question I, about that, Becky? Sure. Okay. Yeah. My specific question: I, I see the um, potential winners as sort of a win-win, and this is what I mean. I think if Ellison becomes the chair, then he will obviously um, take his expertise and his righteousness and devote DNC resources to organizing initiatives that will help not just the DNC but also other sort of community organizations and maybe some farther left sort of working families DSA style political initiatives. That he, he'll be really good for the Democratic Party in in that way. I, I think that if Perez is um, becomes the chair, then that um, has the potential to uh, alienate a really significant number of um, Sanders voters as, as just a shorthand for like the non-establishment, non-neoliberal sector of the Democratic Party, uh, and, and that those people will then uh, likely step up and join those outside organizations, working families, DSA, things like that, that there could be a real kind of dem exit from that moment, it, sort of akin to the, the mobilization that has ensued in the wake of the election, where like the, the disappointment sort of spurs people's action. So that that's maybe it's kind of a rosy thing to think of it as a win-win either way. But I, I wonder what your take is on that um, formulation. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think we just don't know, right? And and I think it told that could that could be a scenario. I I think that um, here's the thing is I, I just don't think no matter who comes out leading the the DNC, there's going to be a, a huge amount of, of infighting over staffing and resources, and they're going to have they're they're broke because no one's been giving any money because they don't know who the leader is. There's going to be a huge amount of money to raise in a short period of time. Um, and so I think that it's going to take months for that to sort itself out about what that's actually going to be. And we don't really, we can't really wait for months. And so, um, and so, you know, what I've been telling people is, is like, let's hope for the best and, uh, and let's help whoever gets in there. Um, if they put forward agenda that we agree with, you know, to achieve that. But separate from that, I think we have to go out and do the work and get the work started that we know needs to happen. Because it's just not even clear that a, a Democratic Party that pays lip service to things that we care about is actually going to be able to move quickly enough hmm. um, to make the change that we need to see in time to, to, to make an impact on the, on the 2018 um, uh, elections. So, you know, I, I, I think, you know, there's I, – I, I wish both of the people running uh, for the DNC luck. I think that um, I, you know, I'm supporting – Ellison for the DNC, um, you know, I, I have to say I've been quite disappointed to see the smear campaign against him where, you know, the 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 the, the Clinton campaign and, and people that supported them really went after the Bernie Sanders campaign with this idea with this misconception mm. of Bernie bros and then mm -hmm. it was a white movement and mm -hmm. then when we have this African American Muslim running for the head of the DNC, then he smeared as being a, a black Muslim who mm -hmm. couldn't possibly appeal to voters in the Rust Belt. And so, uh, and I think an, an anti-Semite to boot. Yeah, and that they actually oppose our ideology. You know what I mean? And it really wasn't about pragmatism. Um, and it really wasn't about diversity. It was really oh, right, about right. ideology. I, right. um, you know, and so I, 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 I think that um, you know, I, I think that the, that the that the we haven't that, that we need a lot of leaders to emerge, and that we need a lot of centers of power to to rise up. That um, uh, to that the DNC is going to need to compete with. Right, and if we want the DNC to move towards the kind of organizing that we want to see, um, they're going to have to see that that's where the money is, and that's where the energy is, and they're going to have to basically understand that they need to compete with other entities and co-opt it. So, if there was a nurse, if you Jesse, if you organize a nurses party or a caregivers party, right, you know, um, uh, uh, and and that starts to then compete with the DNC, and then the DNC has to co-opt what you're doing in order to 
you know, make sure that they stay in the lead. I think that would be a huge victory. So I encourage, you know, people to go out and build any kind of party-like structures, you know, that they think will actually capture the zeitgeist of the moment and set a standard. And then, and then I hope the DNC will, will recalibrate, you know, once we show them where the energy of the people are. But I think we can't assume that any one leader coming in to the DNC is going to be able to fix um, everything. Um, they're all going to need um, a lot of organizing efforts happening everywhere, um, a constellation of efforts, um, all, pointing in the, all pointing in the right direction um, to get this party moving again. Nice. And I'm going to read, not now, but because we're running out of time and I know you have to go, but I'm going to read for our listeners parts of your book that I didn't, wasn't able to read. And I think the fighting racism must be at the core chapter is really good. So we'll read that later. And thanks for doing a great job. Great. On that. Um, just final well, words. Well, I, thanks for having oh, yeah, me yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks I, for coming. So, I love this show. Oh, thanks, I, Becky. I, I, yeah. love, I love this show. we got to get you on in, favorite, in New York you know, and do a live discussion. taping. Live taping. Yes. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So everyone, and what's the website of Knock on Every Door? Knockeverydoor.org. Okay, that's easy. Knockeverydoor.org. So David Brock, I'm saying this in a not threatening way. I'm, I'm coming for you. I'm going to knock on your door, and I'm going to bring you a fruitcake or like a, a Danish or something, and we'll nosh and talk. Uh, you too, Sally Albright. Um, Becky Bond, thank you so much. Author of Rules for Revolutionaries, How Big Organizing Can Change Everything with Zach Exley. Bye, Becky. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Thanks. Jesse. So long. Wow. What a, what a, she, you know, I forgot. <laughs> she and, and Zach actually are, are silver haired foxes. They both have short gray hair. It's very cute when they're together. Mm -hmm. They're like a cute little duo. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Jesse, you're, you're doing the heart. You're, you're really organizing. What do we do about, I just want to read one tweet that I think summarizes everything about the neoliberal threat. Sally Albright. You know who Sally Albright is? Oh, yeah. She's on Twitter. She has more. She has 20-something thousand followers. She's basically a pathological liar. She has a great, diverse uh, resume. She is a, She both worked for Newt Gingrich. Yeah, she made an exception for her from her Democratic Right, because uh, if there's devotion. one person who's like, you know, who reaches across the aisle. I'm like, all right, fine. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's new. It's, it's new. He's personally appealing. He's sexy. He left a, a wife, uh, you know. Yeah, great after, family values. After, can you know, her cancer treatment. Uh, he served her with divorce papers. Um, you know, he's racist. He's he he's big driver of that whole, you know, welfare queen thing. Um, so she worked for him and for Hillary Clinton. In 08. And the scary thing about this woman is that she's comms. Like, that's her that's her lane is communications. And I just want to quote one tweet that she, she did that went really viral. And, and she this is one of the few things that she had the decency to, to delete or the, the, the awareness to delete. It was all damage control. It's not like she regretted it, recanted it. Income inequality is only a priority for white cis men. The rest of us have bigger problems. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is weird to suppose that white cis men are on the losing end of income inequality when, of course, white people are wealthier than black and men are wealthier than women and cis are wealthier than queer and or right. trans and, um, you know, like, U.S. born are wealthier than immigrants. Like, obviously, income inequality. Like, um, th this was a, a play that the, the Clinton campaign made uh, during the primary, which was to say that the, the line was like, um, if you... Uh, regulate Wall Street. If you break up the big banks, is that going to solve racism? Oh yeah, and I wrote about that for Pace. Which is which is like, well, it's going to help because obviously Wall Street is a super racist institution. But like, um, even just beyond that, it's 
and and in that very same remark, her she went on to talk about the importance of intersectionality. When, when obviously what that does is silo issues, where it's like income inequality is separate from oh yeah, and almost mutually exclusive. Blah, blah, blah. Whereas like I, it, it seems clear, um, and and I think Sanders could have done a better job of, of emphasizing this, but obviously his candidacy was premised on this economic inequality being the the nexus the the intersection of all of these right. other hierarchies he's a thousand um, times more i mean there's a video true. that's on facebook today that i shared that act tv did and brad johnson found the uh former guest of the show found the footage of it and, and sanders is talking about racism and and economic stuff and how much they intersect and and interact and you know he i mean again the, the hillary clinton saying that thing about it not bringing up the banks uh, was a total lie because it's not like Sanders was like, we're going to break up the banks and that's going to heal all the racial injustice and we're good. not going to do any other... Uh, thank you. We're not gonna, I'm going to do all my shows in this voice now. We're not going to do any other, uh, you know, no affirmative action and the, none of that Michigas. He got a higher rating from the NAACP on affirmative action than Hillary did. So come and show me, the, show me any policy issue where he's better, sorry, where she's better and, and like woker. Than he is, or better on social social issues or civil rights, LGBTQ. Because I got to tell you something, he he's better than her on all of those. Of course, yeah, and 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 partly because he has this actual ideology, right, and, right. and you know, uh, as it is obviously, Wall Street had made all these predatory loans specifically to black people, and that the the housing crash eliminated right, the exactly, majority right. of black wealth. Yeah. That's a crazy thing to think about. Fifty three percent of black wealth evaporated. In this, <laughs> it's like. Uh, Why so, are you yeah. talking about wealth? That's like uh, you're such a class I'm vulgar, a class cis, reductionist. Cis you're such a cis, yeah. Your white privilege is what makes you think class is important. So, so you should go talk to a black person who doesn't have to deal with that. Who's because, being evicted and they yeah, have bigger problems. But their bigger problem is, yeah, is, um, I don't know what, but something. The uh, yeah, it's who Sally knows. Sa Sally, Sally, can speak for those Sally. People. Oh yeah, she knows. She calls them minorities. She's so yeah, she's very woke. So I think that there's that the the question that you asked it is it's tricky to because we have two enemies at the moment. We have bad Democrats mm -hmm. and clearly Republicans. But I think that there is a way of. Um, Treating liberals and mainstream Democrats as partner, as being in a temporary alliance with them on defense mm -hmm. against the Trump and right. slash Republican agenda, but then simultaneously with that, since we're forming this the, this temporary alliance in opposition, jockeying for hegemony within the opposition, mm -hmm. so that once the right is defeated, we what is crash the them. yeah what Just what kidding. is the character of the right. of like the group that's taking over? And actually, I think we're in a good position right. at the moment. I mean, I, I think like, w so like, um, if you look at Indivisibles, which is like a super good popular front way of just like saying no, basic political action toolkit for liberals and leftists to get together, call their Congress people, whatever it is, you know, do, do these actions, saying no to the Trump regime, like that. that's a, a good um, way to do that. And simultaneously, there are these, um, uh, Initiatives like the ones that I asked Becky about, mm -hmm. Democratic Socialists of America and Working Families Party that are doing good work to advance a different sort of um, politics mm -hmm. from mainstream Democrats. And that getting involved in those, we can sort of do our offensive work at the same time as we're doing the defensive work. We're doing defensive work uh, with liberals against the right, right and offensive work against liberals within the, uh, the within opposition wing, coalition. Right, right. Um, and I think that that's a doable thing. I think it's tricky sometimes to figure right. out, like, do I call this person out? There's sometimes right. on my side and sometimes right. not. But um, We should just have them stuff envelopes, and we'll <laughs> do all the kind of mission statement stuff and policy shaping and, and the demands, and we can tell them. We'll just tell them that, that, that we'll give them, like, a... 
Beyonce videos and Hillary videos uh, loop of those things, like, uh, and they'll just, you know, so they'll be happy about that. And then, uh, no, no, no shots fired at Beyonce. I'm just saying there's a, a, an interesting weird. It'll bet. it'll be a good way to keep right wing liberals docile while exactly, they're licking right. envelopes exactly, or whatever. Yeah, because actually it is a great thing because if they don't do that, they'll be problematically rejecting Beyonce, and That's we can true. call them out. I think we just figured this out. Am I right? <laughs> really? But yeah, I mean, how much? I guess how much does Twitter? I mean, my, what I'm obsessed with the idea that like we have to look at what happened to fix what happens moving forward and again some of me it's just because i can't stand these people and i wanted you know i wanted them to have to admit that they were wrong but really like 90 percent of the motivation well that's a real jewish thing you know like like i I was actually talking to my my aunt who's a rabbi not to do that isn't anti-semite they're being anti-semitic um my my aunt is a rabbi and she's a, a chaplain she does um uh counseling and she was telling me about this um this conference that she went to a sort of interfaith conference about um, making reparation for trauma, uh, oh, and she yeah. was saying that that the that Christians are commanded to turn the other cheek. That that forgiveness is expected and immediate, but the Jews we actually like require some remorse and like the, it, it, it's uh, our forgiveness like is harder won, uh, and that's we kind of scripturally based. Uh, and I think that's a, a totally fine thing to like to like need an apology because the fact is that like during the the primary. We on the Sanders side were constantly dismissed and derided, and um, women on the Sanders side were, were um, first of all, erased. And when they were acknowledged, it was said that they were only there because we men were there and they wanted to pick yeah. us. You know, like all, I was all this stuff. For dates. And, and so, like, um, all of this was premised on the obvious supremacy of Hillary Clinton as a candidate. And, and when it's now been revealed how what a deficient candidate she was i think there's there's a real like if if the clinton folks are serious about wanting to you know bring people together in opposition to trump then it's really incumbent upon them to as you said sort of like account for the dismissiveness the derisiveness the the um single pair is never going to happen you guys are are idiots kind of tone because that, you can't just do that and then once your candidate loses once your candidate fails in all of the ways that you've said she will succeed then expect us to just move right. ahead forward and not right. you know look, look look ahead not back as right. as obama said when he declined to prosecute torture under the bush administration yeah good example you know like you, you sometimes that actually determine that shapes the f- the agenda moving forward yeah exactly that's what i'm i mean it, it's not and so that you just brought up a good thing like there's some righteousness and like having to f- admit that that you're that you made mistakes to kind of earn people's trust yeah. but it's also to like again i don't want people who say that college is a crazy free college is a crazy idea to be it, to think that they were that they were right about it because they said it before the election mm-hmm. and despite hillary not winning they're saying it still so i feel like there needs to be a, a, a education re-education of Lauren Hill. Of Clinton Shells. How do you like oh, that? That's look good. At that. Oh my God. Okay. Very nice. Also, by the way, you could see I was chuckling while you were talking, and it's because I, I, I actually tweeted out. Can you guys tell me what are the worst neoliberal shell tweets of uh-huh. uh, going around? So to find out the greatest and worst tweets of the week, as well as absurd things said by Sally Albright and Jen Palmieri, please become a Patreon subscriber. But as promised, here is the freebie bonus which is journalist and author Sarah Jaffe talking about Keith Ellison and Tom Perez. I think really, I mean, part of it, it's, you know, the, the endless like resistance to change is hilarious, right. but like, I think really the heat is in the street right now. Hmm. It's um, whatever, whoever your representative is, whoever is in charge of the DNC, whoever is in charge of, 
I am all of the things, and I'm you're about to talk to Becky Bond, who can talk about this more than I can. But like, people are already organizing. Whoever, like, right. without the DNC, right? right. Um, people are already knocking on doors and having house parties and having house meetings and creating email lists right. and making their congressmen's sure. congresswomen's lives a living hell on both in both parties, which is as it should be. And so, you know, rather than like get wrapped up in the intricacies of party politics, um, your the best thing I would say for people to do is make sure that your member of Congress, whoever they are, whatever they supported in this election, knows that you are going to ruin their lives if they don't actually stand up to Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the the DNC chairs would be more responsive to that stuff, right, in general. But I think you're right that the— I, you know, we, as we talked about when I was on your show last right. time, one of one of the DNC chairs once defended a guy for punching out a Nazi. The other one, I do not know if that ever happened. Right. Oh, uh, right, right, right. So you're agreeing with me. I thought you were going to say something like, so right, one of them, right. I mean, it's to me, what is, what's most fascinating about it is how bad the Democrats not, are not at like doing the right moral ethical thing, but at doing the smart thing. Like if they want people to stay in the party, all these people yeah. who feel really disenfranchised and felt like their vote was stolen or felt like there was, um, you know, uh, disenfranchisement, whatever, which you can agree with or disagree with. The truth is a bunch of people feel that way, like the Bernie people, yeah. the Stein people. Right. And if these two guys are similar, which people only people who like, um, if they're similar, why don't you give it to the I mean, president? I did a guy for punching out a Nazi, but if he did, I would like to know about it. Well, that's kind of the thing. No one knows enough about him. So when they say there's these both like Tom, one has been in office and has a record. The other doesn't. Yes. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, you'd think that these people would throw a given olive branch, uh, but that's not their, that's not their thing. And so no, it's, it's not. And it's a symptom of this kind of morbid politics that we have in this country, which thinks that, again, you don't have to go out and talk to people. You just like there are two options and you get to be the one of those that is slightly better, which is basically the Democrats brand for the last 50 years, slightly better than the other guy. Hey, right. at least we're not right. him. Right. Hey, I remember Goldwater. He was nuts. Right. Um, like, that's their brand. Their brand is nothing, but we're not them. And that's a crappy brand. And it has, and it's so deeply internalized at this point that, like, the idea that there might be another person who looks at them and says, well, I'm not her, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> like, exactly. And, and comes from a different direction. Right. Or there's somebody is like, this isn't enough anymore. Um, or the fact that America just, like, we, the, the Democrats basically just boy who cried wolfed America. Right. right? Yeah, they over and over and over. The world will end if you don't vote for us. The world will right. end if you don't vote for us. The world will end if you don't vote for us. Well, look what happened. Right. Everybody said, well, they say that every time and stay at home. Right. 